This thing is not the most comfortable <laughs> thing ever. It's like pinching my temples. All right, let's turn this on. Set a timer. So that I don't be like Joe. That's <laughs> kidding. Whoa. Too much, too much. Rosie. Okay, uh, raise of hands. How many of you would say that your workplace has a great culture? <laughs> All right, a, a, a few, a few. All right, how many of you would say that your workplace is a terrible or, or perhaps a toxic kind of culture? Okay, ooh, a few as well. So what, what makes it great then? Feel free to yell it out. What makes it great? People? Spirit of God, great. Or what makes it terrible on the flip side? Bad? Okay. Wow, okay. Gossip, okay. Yeah, good, good. The people, yeah. Okay, so you might, yeah, those are really good answers. Perhaps you might also say that, you know, your, your, your company has a great culture because you get to wear casual clothes, you know, like T-shirts and shorts, or maybe everyone's nice to each other, respectful. Or you might say that your workplace is, is, has a terrible culture uh, because there's maybe even you know, sexism, racism, uh, bullying, and so on. So culture is one of those things where sometimes it feels a little bit, it's hard to describe, right? It's intangible and, and ambiguous as well. And yet in, in business, at least, um, the experts always say that culture is the most important thing to get right. And historically, we have seen so many companies rise to the top and then they fall off a cliff and almost always is because of some sort of systemic uh, cultural issue that did not get addressed. Um, some examples, one I can think of that was really famous is Enron, for example. You know, they had a growth at all cost culture, which led it down a path of uh, financial fraud, you know, shoddy accounting, hiding debt, uh, so on, right? Basically, they were lying about numbers so that their stock price would keep going up. And infamously as well, they, all that came to a stop. Uh, they went bankrupt. There's, I think the CEO or some executives went to jail. Uh, even the accounting firm that kind of dealt with them is no, no more around. Uh, more recently as, as well, and probably more familiar to me, will be tech companies like WeWork in the news where the CEO got ousted. Um, Uber, all right, big in the news, stock price down as well. And Uber, for example, they had a culture that promoted competitiveness at all costs. So this culture led to lots of unethical behaviors and practices. Uh, for example, one thing they did was they, they kept booking rides on their competitors' apps and then canceling it at the last moment, right? Just to cause, you know, just to mess them up, right? And, and, and waste their money. And because of this mindset, when it was reported that one of their passengers of their drivers was a victim of rape, something so serious like that, instead of trying to immediately offer help and get to the bottom of, you know, investigate all that kind of stuff, their first reaction was to assume that you know, this is the work of a competitor that's trying to sabotage them. So stories like these go on and on, and why does this matter, right? Why are you telling me stories about corporate failures you know, this morning at church? Uh, well, culture is something that I think about um, quite frequently, um, I guess because you know, I'm grateful to be in a position where I can influence it in my workplace, uh, so I want it to you know, not only set us up for success one day, but even if we, if we fail, right? Hopefully, at the end of the day, everyone, you know, at work loved each other, we enjoyed it, we learned, we can move on, and, and, and all that good stuff. But if our organizational culture is so paramount to the success of business, 
then surely culture at church is just as crucial to the success of the church. Um, not only that, uh, as we think about it, how does Christian culture affect the cultures of the world? And practically, how does that work? It feels like today, most of the time, things are kind of moving in the wrong direction, right? Worldly cultures seem to be permeating the church rather than Christian culture changing the world. Um, I think a month or two ago, um, Pastor Kiichi from Japan, he came and spoke about the gospel versus, does anyone remember? Shame culture, fear culture, and guilt culture, I think, right? The podcast can go download it. So in my exploration of how to set good culture at work, I've come across, you know, this book that I've been reading on this topic. It's a secular book, so not fully relevant here. Um, but basically in that book, the author uh, studies the lives of several characters, some historical, some still alive, and he, he draws principles uh, from them on how to build and change culture. And the book is somewhat interesting, somewhat useful uh, and practical. But in reading it, I noticed that you know, it's kind of a pity that you know, Jesus, of, Jesus Christ of, Net, <coughs> of the Bible wasn't one of those individuals that were studied. And to me, and I'm sure to you as well, he's, one of the, he's probably the greatest revolutionary uh, in history. And Jesus was born into a very particular culture of his time uh, and place. And through him, as we know it, Christian culture has spread you know, to the ends, far ends of the world even though the world might seem more and more atheistic or agnostic uh, today, uh, so much of it is still, you know, has a basis in Christianity and therefore Christ. So my approach in coming up with content for today was basically to take those lessons uh, gleaned from those other people, those other characters, and kind of cross-check them with the life of Jesus to see if there's any overlap or not. And I guess surprisingly or not, uh, I found that there's there's a lot of overlap and today we'll look at how some of these practical tips can help us uh, perhaps improve culture at our work or at our church, and also how to spread you know, this Jesus culture to the world. So, uh, before we dive right into it, we need to define culture. Many companies have cultural statements or core values that they write up on their walls, um, and I guess that is good practice, um, but often they're just that, right? They're just words on a wall. My company, a few years ago, we tried to do that. We sat together and we tried to write them down. And we, it was so hard, we, we never really actually succeeded. So we tried to write core values, but couldn't kind of come up with anything good. But despite that, culture still happens, right? Whether you articulate them or not. Our church, GCC, we have a list of core values on the wall, up the, up the back or the front. Um, not sure if you know, there are 10 of them. And I bet that there are few of us or even any of us that will be able to recite them. So does this mean that these are just aspirational words on a wall? The book that I'm uh, reading defines it as what you do, or more specifically, what you do when no one is watching. And I actually think it's a really great definition. So culture is is the behavior of a group uh, when you don't need to act. For example, in a workplace, uh, if the boss is not around, do people continue to, to work hard, or do they end up slacking off, having chit-chats, and maybe even leaving work early? Right? In, in some Asian Singaporean cultures, you know, people tend to feel like they have to stay back at work if their boss is there, and they almost have to act like they're working and you know, leaving only when their bosses leave. James 2, 17 and 18 says, Thus also by faith itself, 
if it does not have if it does not have works is dead but someone will say you have faith and i have works show me your faith without your works and i will show you my faith by my works i think this verse kind of ties into that really well culture is also unique so what works for one organization might not work for another uh, take two companies right now amazon and apple right both you know top value companies in the world right now for for apple in their culture is all about you know design expensive feel everything is pristine and 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 expensive really uh, so much so that you know they're building this multi billion dollar spaceship type office right now right because design is everything to them uh, design at all, at all, at all costs amazon for example another company that you're familiar with their culture is frugality right everything is cheap uh you know they'll ship to you anything you want under the sun and you you know that it's going to be the best prices and for them they drove it home right uh in the early days where when you start work at amazon they literally get a door from you know bunnings and put legs on it and say here's your desk right that's how frugal we are and they set the tone of the culture that way so different very stark differences but works for both companies the next thing about culture is that culture once it is established Uh, it will spread and reinforce itself so if there is a dominating behavior currently in place that behavior is likely to keep going on even as new people join the organization so culture intrinsically has this sort of inertia to it to change it you need to do something drastic usually and this is neither good nor bad it's just a property of culture so if you have some you have a piece of bad culture it will take a lot to change it to something good but on the flip side if you have establish good culture it will require a lot uh, to change it to to be something bad for example if in your workplace some of those ones of you have raised your hands about uh, before if for example there is a culture where everyone goes to work and they berate each other each day you know guess what it probably won't be long uh, before you start going home and doing that to your spouse or to your kids and so on a personal example that i have is um in the military it has a very prevalent uh, swearing or cursing culture almost u- universally right any military is like that for some reason and i guess maybe it's the harsh environment that they're in and you know this behavior has probably been ingrained and repeated for decades and decades and maybe even centuries right back to olden times so while i was in singapore and in the singapore army this was my experience uh growing up as a kid good christian family didn't didn't swear didn't swear in high school even though there was a bit of that um but dropped me into the military and i think it's about 3 months right i tried to hold out within 3 months i gave in to that culture and started cursing myself um it even got mentioned one time we were you know just sitting around talking and who swears the most and i was you know the top 3 or something like that and and it's not like they were offended or just you know casually noting uh, just a fact right but after leaving the army when i was literally plucked out and removed from that culture i went from you know peak swearing and cursing to to not much at all relatively anyway so practically speaking how do we change or cause a, how do we cause a change in culture um the first tip or a method that the book suggests is to make a rule or to tell a story or to say something that is almost shocking And the reason for that is that if you say something a little bit jarring people will firstly remember it and secondly they will th- stop to think about it a little bit more deeply 
So if the rule is shocking, it will beg the question, wait, why do we even have this rule in the first place? In the book, the example was uh, used was uh, this guy called Toussaint Louverture. He's, this, he's a Haitian-French guy, and he was the one that led the Haitian Revolution and bo- abolished uh, s- slavery. So his shocking rule was that married officers were forbidden uh, from having concubines. And to you and I, that might seem you know, fair enough, right? But in their context, they were a rebel militia. You know, rape and pillaging were the norm for any, any military at a time, any army at a time, let alone a rebel force. So requiring them to respect their marital vows you know, would seem a- absurd. Imagine recruiting uh, 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 slave soldiers to join their cause, right? Fight for freedom, join the revolution, great. Oh, by the way, right, we're going to fight against our slave masters, but we won't be punishing them by you know, raping and pillaging. Right? And certainly a new recruit would, would be demanding to know why. And the reason is... Bec- they said, because in this army, nothing is more important than your word. And if we can't trust you to keep your word to your wife, then we definitely can't trust you to keep your word to us. Right? Quite interesting. So this rule will actually pay dividends later on uh, when many of the, the white women in the colony would actually help out uh, Louverture and his army. Um, and they respectfully referred to him as father um, because he looked after them. And that really helped their revolution. So we're all not... Um, generals in military uprisings, so we can't create rules out of nowhere. And Jesus himself, he wasn't of noble birth, right? He was just the son of a carpenter. That being said, Jesus seemed to suddenly have this trait of saying things um, that would make you stop to think and also ask why. He was full of these great, you know, one-liners, you could say, and he regularly told uh, parables to his disciples and to the crowds that followed him around. If you recall, um, maybe a year or two ago now, we had a sermon series titled, Jesus Said What? And the whole premise of that series was, you know, that Jesus said a lot of things um, on the surface that are really shocking, right? So let's, as a church, take some time to look at some of those things and really pause and reflect on, on why he was saying it. If you read the Gospels, it seems like that was his mode of operation, Right? Repeatedly, he would drop one-liners here and there, and and frequently he would speak in parables. So here are a few things um, that Jesus said that would really make you stop to think. It's a bit small. Um, The Beatitudes, for example, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn, the the meek, those they they which hunger. Um, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. If anyone comes to me and not hate your father and mother, wife and children, um, such a person cannot be my disciple. Uh, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, and, and so on and so forth, right? There's so many of these uh, that you would be familiar with. Okay, so it's that simple, right? You just say something shocking, um, and then culture changes. Actually, it's far from simple, because if you just say something shocking, you end up with exhibit A. And we all know how well that went, right? See, there's a actually really fine line uh, between something shocking, between saying something shocking uh, just to provoke anger and outrage, versus saying something shocking to spark uh, thoughtfulness or to promote um, productive discourse. And this line is so fine and delicate, um, especially when we have to navigate today's what I call outrage culture. You know, people are just chomping at the bit. Uh, to be outraged, 
And whoever gets the angriest, whoever shouts the loudest, that person wins. It's really a, a race to, a bot, to the bottom. And this is not something that exists between the church and the world only. It's literally everywhere, right? It's left versus the right, liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, young versus old, vegans versus omnivores, religion A versus religion B, east versus west, greenies, right, topic right now, versus climate change deniers. It's always us versus them, and we are outraged. And don't you dare say this, don't you dare say that, I, I'm, for, I'm pro free, free speech, but you can't say anything that offends me. So we need lots and lots of wisdom uh, to navigate this world. We need to seek wisdom. Um, coincidentally, last week, Pastor Joe spoke about uh, seeking biblical wisdom. Um, if you missed it, again, the podcast is just there as well. Go listen to it. And Proverbs 2 was the passage that he used. Uh, so let me read a few verses from it again. Again, sorry, it's a bit small. Um, Proverbs 2 says, My child, listen to what I say and treasure my commands. Tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver. Seek them like hidden treasures. Proverbs 4, very similar as well. Verse 5, get wisdom, develop good judgment. Don't forget my words or turn away from them. Don't turn your back on wisdom, for she will protect you. Love her and she will guard you. Getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do. And whatever else you do, develop good judgment. If you prize wisdom, she will make you great. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will place a lovely wreath on your head and <coughs> she will present you with a beautiful crown. Uh, James 1.5 as well, which we're again probably all familiar with. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Speaking of outreach culture, um, perhaps today isn't too different to the time of Jesus. Uh, Jesus said a lot of things that really angered the religious leaders of his time, uh, so much so that obviously they plotted and succeeded in crucifying him. Um, and while Jesus was definitely, he was more stern and firm when dealing with the religious leaders who opposed him, um, but he was also ex extremely wise and measured in his approach. When dealing with the, the disciples or the general public, the Bible says often that he was filled with compassion. So he lovingly challenged as opposed to purposely provoking rage. When we were discussing the, the, the sermon series title, The Jesus Said What? one, um, one of the quickly rejected working titles was, you know, Jesus Christ, the shock jock. I liked it at the time, but, you know, shock jock it wasn't appropriate because shock jock refers to a, you know, a radio personality or a media personality whose job is to really incite anger and, to, and rage, right? So that people listen, people engage, and that's the way they can sell a lot of radio ads. And Jesus wasn't out to do that, right? He lovingly challenged the cultural norms uh, to cause productive change. One example where he demonstrates so much wisdom is in John 8, uh, verses 1 to 11. We all know the story of the woman caught in adultery. Teacher, they said, this woman <coughs> was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says <coughs> to stone her. What do you say? What a tricky situation do we find on our hands, right? The clock is ticking. You know, the pitchforks are ready. In this case, people are, you know, picking up rocks. So violence is about to ensue. 
you can really feel the, the mob mentality that is brewing. Outrage culture is at its best. You know, we are offended, we are outraged at this woman's behavior. And culturally, it's the righteous behavior, right? It's the right thing to do to be outraged because it's sin, right? We should hate sin just as God hates sin. But what did Jesus say? Let the first one who has never sinned, let him cast the first stone. I mean, wow, that's just, just perfect, right? The level of, like, no wasted words, the level of wisdom is, is next level to me. In one simple, somewhat shocking statement, he quelled the angry mob, you know, he prevented murderous, rape, murderous violence, and on the other side, he caused impactful, heart-changing behavior in the victim as well. So church, we need more of that kind of wisdom. Does this mean that, you know, we need to, um, you know, mince our words when speaking to unbelievers? Does this mean that we can't speak the truth of the gospel? No, I'm definitely not saying that. Um, but we, we, should, we surely need to speak the truth with wisdom. Now, at some point, someone's going to be upset at anything, so you can't really get around that. Um, but let's look at what um, Izzy Falau posted. I'm going to break down in a few reasons why I think that you know, this wasn't the wisest thing to do. Firstly, I'm not picking on him anyway. In, in any way. Um, this was publicly posted, so I get, get the right to do this. <coughs> and he's doing fine, I'm pretty sure. Um, okay, so firstly... Social media has been around for, what, a good decade now, a good 10 years. So we know by now that some things are just better kept off the internet, right? Better, better kept off social media. You can't listen to the nuance of tone by reading text, right? At work, we use this group chat tool as a means of communication, and we use it extensively. People are typing messages to each other and to multiple people at the same time. Uh, but oftentimes, thing can get a, things can get a little bit heated, right, when people start messaging. And most of the time, people aren't even trying to be mean or hurtful, but it just sounds like it when you're reading it. So at that point, it takes someone mature to say, hey, I know you're not meaning harm, or maybe you are, but either way, let's, you know, let's get together in person and let's just hash it out in five minutes and be done with it, right? So that when you speak to each other, tone is not ambiguous. Okay, that was, sorry, the first point. The second point is, look at the creative artwork, right? It's purposefully designed to trigger you, right? Um, that Comic Sans font or something, um, the all caps warning and hell awaits you, right? Even repent is kind of smaller than the warning hell awaits you, right? I don't think he designed it himself. I'm pretty sure he found a screenshot somewhere. Um, but it's very clear that the designers, you know, trying to cause a reaction, right, with that sort of design. Thirdly, uh, when you start with name-calling, you know that things are already not going to end well, right? If we're going to lovingly challenge people, I don't think that's the right approach. And if you compare the verses he referenced, um, there was actually no name-calling there. We'll read it in a second, right? Homosexuals, for example, weren't specifically mentioned. And the Bible verse is actually talking about the works of the flesh and proceeds to list uh, a non-exhaustive list of examples, right? It did not label people. It just listed the sins that, that we all, as Christians, need to crucify so that we, we can live and walk in the Spirit. Fourthly, um, again, it's good that he posted a reference uh, in the caption of the post, and he 
to call it out, he um, listed Galatians 5, 19-21, Acts 2.38, Acts 17.30, all in KJV, which again, maybe not the best uh, translation for social media, but sure. But for my problem is, why do you put your own interpretation of, on, of God's Word on the front page and effectively put God's holy word, you know, in the fine print on the back page, right? And guess what? The media took that and sent that all over the world. All the media outlets just took that, screenshot of that. And the verses on my phone as well, this, this screenshot was on my phone. You can't even see it, right? It's, it's buried beneath, right? So I don't think that was, that was super wise as well. And as people share just that, right, now you're taken out of context and it causes, you know, outrage culture. Fifthly and lastly, like why do we feel the need to point out the speck in our brother's eye when there's probably a log in our own? And that's another shockingly wise thing that Jesus said, by the way. All right, why don't we lead with love and compassion just like Jesus did? Why do we feel the need to put our scolding spin on God's Word? And perhaps that's why the church is losing its relevance in the world today, right? Because we're constantly using it to nag others and to make them feel small. A couple of months ago, Alex Stark, um, he said this about evangel- evangelism that I'll never forget. And he said, repentance is actually good news, right? It's a positive thing. But the way we frame it always makes it seem like the opposite. So let's read uh, Galatians 5, 16 to 26, since, you know, this is the main passage that this post was inspired on. And I'll read it from King James, since that was what was referenced. Uh, too small to read again, but the, the reference is there. Verse 16, it says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye sorry, be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, I don't know what that means still, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in the time past, that they which do so, such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, pe- sorry, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the afflictions and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So I would wager a bet that if he posted, or if any one of us posted that word, right, full shop, like whole thing, on social media, right, zero outrage would ensue. Right? I really struggle to imagine that anyone would be mad at that, Right? Um, so perhaps we need to push out the Word of God more and lessen our own words. You know, God's Word is filled with infinite wisdom and power, so let His Word do the talking and let God's Word change <coughs> lives. 
So that was point one. To change culture, you need to you know, either create rules or that are shocking or tell stories that are almost shocking. Um, but the big caveat to that is you need to lovingly challenge. You need tons of wisdom. And we need to ask for wisdom. We need to be like Jesus um, more and more. And if we don't have anything wise to say, I think just say what the Bible says. I mean, really just say exactly what the Bible says and not add our own spin to it. Uh, point two is to change culture, you need leadership. So by default, um, the act of changing behaviors and mindsets, that is by default leadership. So when, say, someone is going down a particular direction and you redirect them down a different path, that is an act of worship. Do we, therefore, need to be in places of authority to uh, affect change? Not exactly, though certainly it would help. Um, especially in organizations that are very top-down, it's, it's going to be tough to co cause cultural change if you're not at the top. Back to the, the military swearing example again. Um, part of the reason why you know, this swearing culture influenced me was because from the top right to the bottom, cursing was commonplace. Um, especially with the leadership, right? They are demonstrating more almost, um, especially when they're barking orders. You can expect them, you know, some expletives to, to come out. In the military, you don't hear, gentlemen, please gather hastily, right? This is just not, right? Instead, you hear, I won't, yeah, you hear, beep, 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 all right? Lots of beeps and then falling down, that sort of thing, right? Um, so when the people in charge are constantly acting that way, right, it's going to be impossible to change it from the bottom almost. Unless you can influence the people at the top, um, then you can inspire change there and let it trickle down slowly. My current workplace, um, comparatively, I think, doesn't swear too much. Um, compared to all the jobs I've been in, it's probably the least. Um, and in my experience and observation, definitely, you know, if, if, if leadership um, curses a lot, the whole company in general would curse a lot as well. For this reason, I think we need to pray for um, you know, godly men and women to, to ascend to high places in, in business, in government, and in our communities. And additionally, we need to pray for our influence over our leaders, right? for that to grow, um, just as how uh, Joseph influenced the king. Incidentally, though, more and more organizations are getting less hierarchical, and getting more flat. Um, and I think that, that gives us more and more freedom you know, to affect cultural change wherever we are. We are. <clears throat> Leadership is also not purely about appointment. Um, it's about influence, not just you know, from the downward level, but sideways and, and upwards as well. To lead effectively, you need to walk the talk. If you're going to um, suggest a new behavior, um, a cultural change, then obviously you need to demonstrate that new behavior yourself. Um, leading by example works in two ways. Firstly, if you don't practice what you preach, um, then you're a fraud, and why should people follow you anyway? Um, especially if you want to affect change, right, when, when no one is watching. Secondly, leading by example works because uh, repetition is essential when trying to reinforce something new. All habits die hard. Um, so remember, I was talking about the inertia of culture. It's no surprise that, that Jesus Christ, um, the servant king, he did that. Uh, for example, in the Gospels, just one thing, he, he repeatedly 
spoke about prayer, for example. I didn't gather the verses because there are a lot, um, but you can look it up yourself. Um, and we all know that Jesus talked about prayer over and over again. Uh, he talked about the importance of prayer, uh, how to pray, what to pray for, how often, and he even told parables on, about prayer. And as you would also know, uh, Jesus practiced what he preached. The Bible said, states that he often withdrew to lonely places and prayed in Luke 5, uh, 16. And here are some examples as well of Jesus um, going away to pray. Uh, Matthew 14, 23, for example, after he had dismissed them, he went up by a mountainside by himself to pray. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed and so on. In his most um, distressing moment, the night of his betrayal, Jesus resorted to prayer. Uh, we know the story in Matthew 26, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 38, for example, he said, he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So here Jesus is both teaching and demonstrating the importance of prayer. When times are hard, when it seems too hard to handle, pray. The disciples didn't know the, the enormity of the situation at the time, and partly that's probably why they kept falling asleep. Um, but we know that his leadership example paid off, because when you fast forward um, to after the crucifixion, after the ascension, we read that the disciples, you know, they were having a prayer meeting together in the upper room. Another thing that you often have to do um, as a leader is to repeat yourself. You know, over and over again in this story, Jesus had to come back to them and he would catch them asleep. He'll wake them up and he'll say, watch and pray. And literally he'll do that. I think he did that about three times. And this is a practice we actually do in the workplace as well. You know, if there's a problem that needs to be solved in the workplace that hasn't been, the quickest way to get it done is to have a daily meeting at the same time Right, and the manager will ask the question, why is this not fixed? Right, over and over again. And then you'll get an excuse because reason A, and then they'll go away and fix it, and you ask, why is this not fixed? Then they'll come up with the next reason, the next reason. But eventually, right, when you drive it home, all the reasons will be solved, and the problem will be solved. So repetition is needed. Okay, thirdly, and this is a short one, um, last point on how to change culture is inclusion. Matthew 19, 13, and 14 says, Then people <coughs> brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such a things. So Jesus ministered to everyone, ranging from adults to children, he hung out with the everyday working class people as well as the rich rulers. Uh, he hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes, which are, you know, the scum of society, you could say. Um, and he also hung out with the nobles, both and Jews and Gentiles as well. So if you want to build culture, you need to be inclusive. And it sounds very basic and there's not much to, to elaborate on here. Um, but I guess we need to watch ourselves because as a society... Um, along with outrage culture, you know, we seem to be more and more exclusive, right? It's like we like to form 
groups and teams and to be mad at the other group and the other team. So we need to check ourselves, right? Even us as a church, why are we, you know, predominantly Asian here? Why is there only one dark-skinned family who's not here for me to troll <laughs> in, this ch- in this church, right? What would happen if a person that dresses different, looks different, acts different, comes to our church? I really don't know, right? But we need to, to think about that and think hard about that. So we've covered um, three tools that um, Jesus used to change culture. And I think this sermon series over the next few weeks as well, we're meant to talk about practical Christian things, right? Um, So how about we try to apply some of this uh, or what we learned today? Are there parts of our church culture that needs changing? And I'm not referring to the church at large. I'm talking about us, Grace Christian Church. The first thing, first behavior that comes to my mind is our lateness. Um, and this has been addressed by you know, Pastor Joe and others in the eldership before. And I'm sure you would agree that you know, this is a systemic cultural issue in our church. Right? We all know that worship starts at 10.15 every Sunday. But at 10.15 every Sunday, less than half of the church is here in the sanctuary ready to worship. It's not a new issue, right? Uh, we've been arriving church late for church for you know literally years and years. I think I've been coming here close to 20 years now, and I'd say probably the majority of that we're, we've been late. And you know this pre- predates Joe coming as a, on as a pastor even, right? Before Julie went to Japan, we were late. She's back. We're late still, right? <laughs> Things like that, right? <laughs> So I don't know about you, but how about we try to fix this issue today? It's not going to be easy because, again, we've been ingraining this and it's been spreading for most of our church history, I would say. But let's try anyway, right? Why not? Right? Um, okay, so to start, let's try with a, start with a shocking story and then we'll try to lay down a, a shocking rule. <coughs> okay, so personally, honestly, I would admit um, that yeah, at least in the more recent years, I'm not the model GCC member, right, that comes on, ch- on time to church on Sundays. Um, on any given Sunday, I would estimate that, you know, maybe 50% of the time I'll be on time or early and the other 50 late. So not a very good record. If you consider my longer tenure at church, though, <laughs> I think that would increase somewhat dramatically, right? I, I don't know what, maybe 70%, maybe 90 who knows? Um, <laughs> 90, yeah, 99. See, for years and years, um, I served on the sound team, right, what, what Brad is doing. And especially back in the day when GCC operated out of a community hall in, in West Penn Hills and so on, you know, we had to get up extra, extra early to set up all this AV equipment. I mean, imagine setting all this up every Sunday, um, carrying these big speakers, my back's broken from that. Um, <coughs> it's backbreaking work, right? Sound equipment by nature is, is really heavy. And add to that, some of, the church, some of the equipment was stored at the community hall, some of it was stored you know, in people's houses, and you know, we had to bring it all together, we had to set it up, which took a while. After you set it up, you got a test, because we were literally breaking it apart each week and set, putting it back. Something always went wrong, right? So you got to then troubleshoot, you know, clock sticking, you're sweating, you're trying to make the sound work. And after you do that, then the worship team could start to practice, 
right? Um, and then once it's all ready, yeah, they could practice, and all the hard work had to be done by 10.15, and 10.15 would arrive, and less than half the church would be there to ready to worship God. So I did all that hard work in early mornings for years, and definitely I wasn't the only one. I was one of many. Um, but fast forward to, you know, let's say the last four years. Now we've got kids, and that throws it all out the window, right? Um, when you've got a newborn especially, you start with sleepless nights. So you're, you're sleep-deprived to start, right? And you're, chances are you're, you're up early in the morning already because the baby's awake. So you think that you'll arrive to church on time. But then you've got to feed them breakfast, and that's you know, a big battle in itself. If breakfast goes smoothly, you probably might get to church on time. But usually, a child doesn't want to eat. Food gets flung everywhere, tantrums, crying. Then you've got to add cleanup on top to the mix. Um, once you've cleaned up, on top of that, you've also got to kind of try to time um, when the baby's about to fall asleep again for their morning nap. Um, just as you get into the car. If not, you know, you have a screaming baby for 30 minutes as you drive on the M2, you, you're locked in there, you can't do anything. Screaming child, your stress levels go up. Um, yeah, it's, it's an ordeal. And finally, you arrive at church. Baby has either fallen asleep just as you drive up the ramp. If that's the case, right, one of you is going to sit in the car anyway because you don't want to take him out and risk, you know, the, the screaming again. Um, or the child is still screaming and you've got to take, him, take the child out um, and one parent has to kind of console them in the cry room, right? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a bleak story. <laughs> <laughs> Have kids, they said. <laughs> right, but either way, one of you is going to miss out on worship. You're both tired, right? Um, and then you're, even if you're there, you might not be concentrating on the sermon anyway. <laughs> Whatever, right? So that was my excuse for all the times I've been late for the past few years. But what's yours? Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <coughs> I'm not trying to, honestly, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Um, you know, you have your reasons, I have my reasons, and some of them are good reasons, right? I'm not, you know, picking them out for you and, and checking, cross-checking them, you know. But the thing is, there are always going to be reasons, right? Um, in the last four years of having kids as well, we've gone on a few holidays that in involved catching flights. And guess how many times we miss our plane? None, right? Zero times. Um, what does that say about us? Um, I know that um, you know, the comparison might not be exactly the same. If we were to catch 52 flights a year, we'll probably miss a handful at least, right? Um, but if I were to really challenge myself, I think it, it really comes down to priorities. Having paid for an expensive holiday, right, there's no chance that I'm going to let my child ruin that and waste my hard-earned money. <laughs> no amount of winching, no amount of screaming is going to stop me from dragging them to the airport on time. Actually, we're not going to be on time, we're going to be early so that we can get the, the best in that row, right? There's no two ways about it. But contrast that with church. Subconsciously, I think, look, you know, it's just church. I'm too tired to concentrate anyway. I'm going to miss out on most of it anyway. I've been early most of my whole life. <laughs> now I have kids. I have the right to be late. Half of the church is going to be late anyway. My reasons are better than yours. How shocking is that attitude? Right? But I'm, I'm just being honest. 
And, you know, after doing some soul-searching, that is what is in my wretched heart, right? Unfortunately. Unfortunately, I prioritize holidays over church, and that is just a fact. And my actions show my attitudes, because what I do is who I am. Again, most of the, a lot of times, the reasons are valid, but the attitude stinks. And with an attitude change, would I be early for church 100% of the time? Probably not. But, you know, there will always be un- unforeseen circumstances. But would I be early for church much more often? I think definitely the answer is yes. <clears throat> so, that is my... Um, that's the story of my shocking attitude. Again, not trying to shame you, guilt you, or anything. You have your reasons. I don't know them. I'm sure they're valid. Um, however, what I'm trying to do is to challenge you, right, lovingly. Uh, perhaps you, like me, you have legitimate reasons mixed in with, you know, an attitude that is not great. So along with that shocking story, let's try to set a shocking rule. Um, let's be clear that I hold no official leadership role in this church that permits me to create rules for members. Uh, I'm just an ordinary one as well. So let's call this an unofficial rule. And it shall be that if you're not early for church, then you're already late for church. If you're not early for church, then you're already late for church. So if you want to put numbers to it, we could say that if you're not, say, 15 minutes early for church, then you're already late. What? Why would we have this nonsensical rule? I think it makes sense, and it's very similar to why we would show up for interviews. See, there's this general and unofficial rule that, you know, you should arrive at least five to ten minutes early before your interview, right? What are the reasons for that? Well, and by the way, this is not including buffer time, right? The reason is not buffer time in case your bus is late or whatever, right? You add your buffer time on top of that. Right, the reason is, firstly, you want to show that you're a responsible human, responsible human being, and you've got everything under control, you casually stroll in and you casually, effortlessly appear at the places that you need to be. Right? You're not stressed and frantically trying to stick to your schedule. Secondly, you probably want to compose yourself, get used to the surroundings, get comfortable so that you know, you're prepared and, and ready for the interview. And thirdly, you, you might need to use the bathroom. <laughs> so as for church, 10.15 is when the music starts. It's not actually when church church commences. Uh, so I've come up with five reasons why I think that you're already, <coughs> already late if you're not here 15 minutes early. So the first one is reverence for the king. You know, we come to church to meet with God um, as a church community. So just as you would, you know, arrive early for an interview or maybe an important meeting with the, your CEO or a boss or perhaps a lawyer that you're paying by the minute, or if you have to pick up your child from daycare, where they charge you by the minute if you're late. Right? When there is a person that you're gathering in, the name, in their name of, you don't want to be late. You don't even want to be on time. You want to be early. You don't want to be that guy at the wedding you know, that has to sheepishly walk in after the bride has already walked down the aisle. Right? You missed the grand entry of the bride. That was kind of the whole point. Um, so for those reasons times a thousand, it's why we want to be early when we are gathering for a meeting with the King of Kings. The Bible says that when we are gathered in His name, there He is amongst us. And I think 
that there's, more, there's a sense of purposeful gathering there, not just you know, casually as and when strolling in. Uh, respect for one another. Um, <coughs> it, at your workplace, I bet you have that guy that's always late for meetings. So that person, you know, fundamentally doesn't respect his or her colleagues. That person thinks that as an individual, you know, his or her time is more valuable than the rest of the collective group. So likewise in church, if we're late, we're not respecting each other's time. And collectively, you know, this is a large group of people that they are wasting their time. Um, I know you're probably thinking, you know, you can, you can just start without me. And we could, um, but that is not ideal, and I'll explain why later as well. But we must see that our actions, our lateness affects, you know, the people that are sitting around us that we supposedly love. We also need to respect the time of those who serve on Sundays. Um, I've mentioned the worship team already that comes early to practice, um, but there's a lot of things that go unseen. Um, just take this morning, uh, Simon took his time to encourage us with a short word, um, and a bunch of us weren't even here to, to hear that. And that is not something that he just decided to do at 10.15, right? He, he, he prayed about it, he labored over it, he thought about it, he spent effort in doing that. And all that effort is not free. Um, people are spending their most valuable resource, time, in doing that for your service. So not just the worship team, the MC, the welcome team, person speaking as well, uh, let's do it for, for, in res for their respect as well. Um, yeah, just imagine on a Sunday having done all the preparation and then standing up here, like, <coughs> again, to bring up Simon, he stood up here and he said, good morning, church. I mean, that was tough, right? Um, it, how do you not feel discouraged and dis disheartened um, when hardly anyone's here? That's pretty bad. It's disrespectful. Now imagine if a guest speaker arrives, right? And now it's embarrassing. Or imagine someone visiting for the first time. You know, they Google churches in the area and they see on our website that worship starts at 10.15, so they arrive at 10 because they know that if you're not 15 minutes early, you're already late. So they arrive here at 10, and 10 a.m., whoa, that's bleak. Literally no one is here, <laughs> right? <coughs> and that is sad and embarrassing. And actually, there's no need to, to imagine that because... This has happened very recently, and it continues to happen as well. Uh, I think we just need to open our eyes towards that. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his returning is drawing near. Next one is preparation of our hearts. Um, preparing heart, okay, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm losing my voice. So I'll try to finish up soon. Uh, Psalm 100, verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Back in the olden days, where the way the temple was structured, there are a series of gates and courts that, that eventually lead to the Holy of Holies, right? And back then they couldn't, not everyone could approach, but today we can. Um, but I think with the temple of how it's laid out, I think we need to have an attitude of that as well, where we come, you know, we do different things as we, we draw closer and closer to his presence. And we, you know, really should spend the time to, you know, wash ourselves, so to speak, and to, you know, refocus and, and share the distractions of the week and just 
been, you know, a quiet moment um, to prepare our hearts uh, for worship. Next one is anticipation for His presence, a very similar uh, vein. Um, in Matthew 21, when Jesus was entering the city and people on a donkey and people were shouting Hosanna, they were laying down their clothes and the branches, right? There was a big sense of anticipation there where people would run ahead of Him, you know, to prepare and to lay down things and anticipate Him and, and welcome His presence as He came in. I think that is the attitude that we should have as well to church. Um, lastly is gathering uh, for corporate worship. See, group worship needs a group. And heaven is, is just like this. And that is the whole point, right, of corporate worship. Um, we can do personal worship during the week individually, and that is fine, and that is for that purpose. But the whole reason for church is for us to, to worship together. Um, there, sometimes bigger is better, right? There's sort of a strength in numbers, so to speak. Um, most of us have been to, you know, say a Hillsong conference or some other, you know, worship conference where people gather in stadiums where literally thousands or tens of thousands of people are together in corporate worship, singing in unison, you know, anticipating His presence, worshiping together. I mean, how, I'm sure you've experienced that, right? How much more powerful and edified do you feel? How much... Um, how much more of a sacrifice of worship is that? And that is something that we lose and we lack if we don't get here on time. Um, a few weeks ago when we had, um, you know, the breakfast and everyone was here and when, when the worship started and we said, good morning, church, right, that was then where we were all uh, worshiping God together and how good was that? Whereas on a typical Sunday, we've got to wait till, you know, maybe, you know, the third or the fourth song for that to happen. Same thing with church camps when we're all together and we get together at the same time, and from the get-go, we praise and worship God. Um, how much sweeter is that worship? Uh, there's just something about gathering together, um, not just in the church sense, but, you know, think of concerts with, you know, rock stars or pop stars, right? People in the crowd gathering together, moving together, dancing together. There is some sort of energy there, and it's the same thing with church. Think of sports arenas as well, where you have a whole stadium cheering on, a team or, or whatever it is. When there's unity and there's a gathering of people, uh, there is just power. So this morning, um, let's just close here. Uh, I just want to leave you with the thought of, you know, what would be the outcome if we consistently did this at a church? How much better would church be you know, we just did that consistently. How many lives do you think we would save? How, more, how much more vibrant would our worship be? What would GCC look like at the end of the next decade? I, th I think it's worth a shot, right? If we do nothing, we know how it looks like. Ten years ago, we were the same as we are today, right, in terms of lateness. So we already know how that looks like. But what have we changed? What have we had this shift in our culture? And really, what is the downside of trying? Um, I'll just close here. If, I guess if you're with me on this, would you rise and let's uh, pray together?
Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ. Uh, firstly, to die for our sins, uh, so that we can uh, be with you, uh, but also as, a, as an example to us on how we should, I guess, act and behave. Uh, Lord, firstly, we, we, we cry out for wisdom. We thank you that in your word, your word says that we, if we ask for it, uh, you will give it. So, Lord, this morning we ask uh, individually as an as a church that you give us wisdom. Uh, wisdom so that we will know how to navigate today's culture, that you give us the right words to say or the words not to say. Help us to be an influence uh, wherever we are, at home, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our church as well, of course. And Lord, this morning we, we repent. We thank you. Um, you know, we, we pray that your spirit is moving. Um, and for those of us who have been late, uh, we repent and we change uh, this morning. We change our attitudes, God. And Lord, we're sorry for the times where we have not shown love to each other. And we've given you, I guess, uh, worship and even attitudes that are not deserving of you. Uh, so for that, we, we confess our sins and we repent. God, we commit our church to you. We pray that um, even though we've been like this for a long time, that, that with your power and your spirit, you can cause uh, changes in our hearts. Uh, that we will not be the same church today as we are in the future. Um, but more and more, I uh, will be um, better worshippers, uh, more reliant on you, and just passionate for what you're passionate about. And I guess it starts with our behavior here at church. Um, yes, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.